A note before we begin that this conversation includes discussions around grief and loss. If you or anyone else you know needs someone to speak with, they can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. He was a uh, thoughtful, he was probably the most thoughtful person and he he wasn't afraid to tell you that he loved you and he managed to never run out of ways of saying it in a different way. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Skye Manson, your host for this episode. Today's guest is a household name in the Australian bush. ABC TV presenter and landline host Pip Courtney has been gracing our TV screens for close to five decades now. There have been two men in Pip Courtney's life. There is no doubt that her biggest mentor was her journalist father, who she rarely saw, except for on Saturdays, when Pip would listen on with eager ears as he sat down and dissected the style, tone and headlines of the weekend papers. And then there was John. And I think we all follow Pip's journey with a certain degree of affection, having watched on in shock and dismay as she lost her cameraman husband, John Bean, in a helicopter crash that also took the lives of reporters Paul Lockyer and pilot Gary Ticehurst. Despite it all, Pip still genuinely regards herself as the luckiest girl in the world. This is a delightful conversation, giving such a clear insight into what makes Pip Courtney, Pip Courtney. I started with Landline in 1993 in Canberra. And on my first day, I was shown the office that I would be using. And that was at Northbourne. At the ABC had two offices, one at Canberra Parliament House and one at Northbourne. And then I was told the camera crews and editors all lived up uh, at Parliament House and I got taken up to Parliament House and it was the most exciting thing just to be in the big house and to walk along the corridor where there's Channel 9, Channel 7, The Age, The Australian, it's the whole corridor full of all the political journos that you know I'd been reading and watching and listening to uh, for years and years and years and uh, I got to meet the crews see the edit suites and it's tiny all these people crammed in there it's incredible and my first story was on Marbo and I misspelt it <laughs> uh, how did you spell it m-a-r-b-o I chucked an r in there <laughs> <laughs> I can be a bit um, dyslexic with things um, when I get under pressure like I'm not dyslexic but yeah, yeah. Uh, I have typo twitches, like Barry's always diary. <laughs> oh, that's so good to hear that it happens to the best of us. <laughs> and sustainability, trying to type that. Oh, my Lord. That's a Initiative? <laughs> I find that one hard. Yeah, um, <laughs> very exciting. I wasn't even, it was hard to think about anything to do with agriculture because I was so um, overwhelmed Um a tourist almost about being in Canberra Parliament House and seeing and Kerry O'Brien walk past and Michelle Grattan and Laurie Oaks. Uh, it was just amazing. Uh, yes. 
because that was where you wanted to be, didn't you? You didn't actually aspire <laughs> to to be in landline for so long. You were you had way way loftier aspirations. I wanted to be a political reporter, and I studied politics at university and read everything that I could. And then when I was in ABC TV News in Hobart, I was sent to Parliament for a day and I came back and said to my boss, I never want to do that again. And he just looked at me like, but this is what you want to do. And I said, well, I'm an idiot. And he said, okay. <laughs> I just thought it was appalling. I couldn't believe how what, what question time was. I think I was so idealistic. <laughs> Why were your uh, visions so idealistic? Where did that come from? I think it came from listening to my dad, who's a journalist, and he's very um, politically connected in in terms of, you know, he could walk down to, drive down to Hobart, go to Parliament House, and he'd know everybody. He knew what was going on behind the scenes. And I found that fascinating, but I think I thought there'd be more there'd be less of the argy-bargy and more about good public policy and doing things for the community, not trying to take the other team out all the time. And I think anybody who's watched or listened to Question Time, there's a little part of your heart that dies. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, realised I'd spent three years at uni <laughs> studying for something that I, it took one day to, to shatter. But it's worked out well in the end. How did Landline come to be? So I'd always wanted to get out of Tassie, get over the water and go to the mainland. Um, I mean, Tassie's booming now and it's a really hot, cool place. But when uh, I had left school, it was it was a pretty, if you wanted a good job in, many, in some areas, it's not everybody, of course, but it was um, you wanted to head to the mainland and prove yourself. And I saw this job and I thought, well, I've studied ag at school. I know lots of farmers. I've got lots of relatives on the land and I loved visiting my aunts and uncles and my grandmother and on the farm. I thought, I know these people and I don't necessarily know the issues, but that's what being a journalist is, is particularly working in TV news and radio news. You have no idea what's going to happen when you rock up to work. You get thrown a story and... In radio news, you've got to have it ready in an hour, ready for top of the clock. For TV news, you've got to have it ready at the end of the day. So uh, I was a little concerned that maybe my lack of knowledge uh, would hold me back. But then the other part of me thought, look, I know who to ring and I know these people and I know how to talk to them. And I've got aunts and uncles and cousins I can call as well. So, um, And it didn't take long to get my head around the main issues. You had such a huge journalistic and sort of news gathering influence by your father when you were growing up, and you mentioned it before. But I'm interested to know more about that. Like, what <laughs> what was your um, what were your dinner table discussions like, or, of an <laughs> evening or a Sunday morning? Well, uh, during the week, when he when we left when we got up, he was asleep, so we would go to school and we hadn't sighted him. So he got up at about nine and he was in the office by about 10. He'd come home at five to seven and then there was silence as we all watched the news. Mm-hmm. My mum was amazing. She had the dinner on the table at seven o'clock for 30 years. And so we all watched the news um, and maybe current affair 
and then he'd leave. You might have a few minutes to talk to him about your day. And so during the week, he was a bit of a mystery. But Saturdays, uh, the jazz music would get um, be on 11 and he'd be bopping around the house playing air trumpet and air drums and air piano and, <laughs> and being a total dag. And that's when, you know, the Australian and the Age and the Herald Sun and the Advocate and the Mercury and the Examiner would all be there and um, I'd be reading reading them with him and asking him questions and he'd be saying, this is a terrible headline, this is a cracker, and I'd be saying why. And um, I just I got my love of um, journalism from him because I constantly saw a man who could not wait to get to work, who never never phoned it in I mean he's a workaholic which is, is when you look back on it and it's that's not a good thing like we we all missed out on time with him and he was just obsessed with his his work and but the thing one thing that I learned is he was obsessed that that newspaper represented uh, the community of North, North Northern Tasmania and so he saw it as a, a civic duty and oh. I very much have inherited that. But he also worked on the Herald Sun and he said, hey, don't, don't you get snobby about tabloids. We can write tighter than any of those journos given triple the space at the age. And um, so, yeah, he was all about typewriting. He's a great uh, layout man. And I used to go to the office on Saturdays because mum was punting and she'd had us all week and she'd say, Michael, I don't care what you do with them, but I'm on, I'm on the punt today. So <laughs> I, I loved going I love into it. the office and um, the, all the reporters in there, like it's such a raucous place, a newsroom. It's not like a, sc- a schoolroom where you can't, you have to put your hand up to ask a question and uh, they tease each other. And um, I remember women in there, you know, with their bell bottoms and their buffy hair and mm. giving as good as they got. And I, I just found the newsroom an exciting place. And if if I got in the way, I was taken out the back where there was this big machine that just spat um, large format photos about as big as a computer screen out all all night, all day. And I, when I was really little, I'd just sit there and get everything of the Queen and, and horses and mm. I would put them in scrapbooks and Oh, they were tol- I was tolerated like a, probably a, a puppy in the office or something. And um, I, d- I just loved the energy and I loved and I just knew I wanted the satisfaction from my work that my dad had. And um, on, on summer holidays after I became a journalist, I'd go to the beach with my horse and my dad and my mum. And on, on the, in the mornings we'd be listening to ABC radio and dad would correct the ABC announces and then have a crack at me and then I'd be pick out the typos in the examiner and and point out that his news was a day old and at least we were ahead and mum would just roll her eyes and say, you two are driving me bonkers, I'm going to the sunroom. You, you two are just ridiculous. Stop, Stop it. it. And then when the news was on at 7pm, he'd be going, oh, what, oh, gosh, you know, the, the grammar or that's not right or come on, ask the follow-up question or we'd be watching 7.30. So poor old mum, she'd just be there going, Oh, you did just stop it. Can you still <laughs> hear rest. him? Can can you still hear him now correcting and telling you, urging you this way Absolutely. and that way? Absolutely. I can hear him saying, 
come on, there's a follow-up question there. Come on, ask it. Oh, you let them off the hook or, um, or what a cracking headline. And who's, you know, headline writers in newspapers. I mean, they can, they can be some of the funniest, cleverest um, people around. And he prided himself on good headlines. But, um, yeah, I think if, if there was a takeaway from Dad, it is that there's a reason to, for journalism to exist and that's to hold power to account and to, to know your audience and to inform them, to entertain them. And we, we're not in the business of doing advertising. We're in the business of informing and, but, but not boring, not being boring. And he could go to the cricket. My brother played cricket and he'd go to the cricket, do two laps of the oval, go and go to the phone box and ring, ring the office. And he would have found three or four stories and, so that's the other thing you taught me. Everybody's got a story. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just your job to find it. Oh, I have so many questions. Uh, why do you think you <laughs> didn't end up in a newspaper uh, newsroom? Ooh, yes. Well, he wasn't very happy about that. Um, he figured it was a, I mean, I just grew up thinking I'm going to be a newspaper journal like my father and I could imagine the office and where I would be sitting and, I just couldn't imagine broadcasts. And so I got the job at the ABC and always thought, well, once I get my head around this, I'll go and work on a newspaper. But um, once I started in television, because I did start in radio news, once I started in television, I was hooked. Um, It's like someone stuck a needle in my arm and put broadcast stuff in my veins and uh, after about five years of being a journo, dad rang me and he said, well, we've had a chat. We think you're, you've, you, you've proved that you're, um, you can do this and I'd like to offer you a job. I, asked, I said, oh, what's the salary? He told me and it's a regional newspaper. And I just laughed at him and said, oh, I'm only going to get to say this once. I was only like about an extra thousand dollars. But I said, dad, you can't afford me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm just hooked. I love the fact that TV offers you pictures, music, the sounds of birds or cattle or horses. It's, it's everything. Like radio's got sound, um, print's got words and photos, but TV's got everything. And he, he just said, well, if you want to be part of the ephemeral media, good on you. Oh, so, wow. I mean, he was, he, you know, everything, there was a touch of, you know, sarcasm, but um, I think he was disappointed because to him print was everything and he died more than 20 years ago. I just so wish he was here so we could talk about how the media has changed. I mean, he would just not recognise the place and the fact that print's in decline, that would just break his heart. But I would love to see how the old fella um, would have adapted and I think he would have. But, yeah, I want to talk to him all the time. <laughs> I bet you do. Why do you think you've stayed with Landline for so long? I love, I love this job. I probably let it be part, too much part of my life. Probably don't have the most balanced of lives. Uh, I think I'm a bit like my dad. Um, I love the people that I meet because very much the brief is find the best farmers in Australia and tell their story. If you're going to 
actually watch us on at twelve thirty on a Sunday. It's not like it's nighttime and you've the, the TV's on and you're on the couch. Like twelve thirty in the middle of the day on a weekend, that takes um, commitment. You could be in the garden. You could be at a cafe. You could be playing tennis. You could. There's so many things you could be doing, but you actually have to make a decision. I'm going to go watch Landline, go (laughs) to turn the TV on and watch us. So we, Kerry Lonigan, right at the very start of the program, he said, find the best farmers in Australia, find the, the, the innovators, the leaders, the risk takers, the, the rule breakers. Uh, Let's, we, we have to have people thinking I will always be inspired um, by watching Landline, I will. There will be something unusual, or that will. And we we don't just do ag. You know, we can do stories on communities. We can do stories on on health or politics or sport, as long as it's about life in rural, regional, and remote Australia. So we, I, I think, the spending time with the cleverest people in the room, the people who have, who are prepared to take risks and back themselves, and not prepared to say my far- uh, the way I farm is perfect. Mm. They're always looking for the the extra one percent gains in productivity here, or the extra gain of say improving the biodiversity, or the carbon in their soil, or the quality of um, their wine or their dairy, or just and it's never it never stops. There's never an end point to innovation and. If I look at the files, which I get teased about at work because there's just so many of them, but I had to throw a lot of them out the other day. There was a bit of an intervention. But, um, <laughs> you know, I thought, do you really think that one you've been carrying around for 10 years? And I'm like, they're all my babies and they could all, they're all stories that I want to do, but there's not enough time, there's not enough <laughs> air space, um, air time. Uh, but there's just stories everywhere and it just never stops. And sometimes you'll be um, and you're a journal, you know this, after the last story, every now and then there's not one to move on to straight away and you go, I'll never have a great story ever again. Where are they? <laughs> and then within a day you're like, oh, now I've got six and which ones? That one's in WA, that one's in South Australia. Oh, that one I've got to wait for the, the apple season. Oh, no, when's, when are they sowing the grain? So there's this always stories and always amazing people and I'm always learning something and I think for a journal if once you start learning it can get a bit boring but I've never I've never got bored ever and I just love meeting people I love talking to people and I love meeting people whose brains never stop and who bounce out of bed in the morning and just want to be better than they were yesterday I think people really enjoy the insight into how these kind of programs are put together. Your dad said to you that everyone has a story, you just have to find it. So on those quieter days when you there's nothing immediately in front of you, how do you go about finding these stories? Uh, a lot of it is if you go away and do a shoot, usually you find you come back with two more. <laughs> like um, and the big one for if we're in the pub or the RSL having a having a feed with the crew, I'll wear my landline hat, hoping that someone will come up to me and go, hey, I've got a story for you. But it's about listening to people that you're doing stories with. It's about um, reading everything you can. And then every now and then the dots start joining themselves. 
might read something, then you might hear something, then you sit next to somebody at a dinner and you go, aha, uh-huh, there's something happening here and it's the time to tell it. Um, it's very rare. It's, I mean, th- there's always stories to tell, but for me it's like is it the right time of year for, for TV? If you're doing a wheat story, you don't turn up to do your filming the day after the crops in the, in the silo because <laughs> there's no pictures. Mm. So you always need pictures to drive um, the information and so it's it's a lot of my job is about logistics how far away are they how do we get there and what are the pictures is it the right time of year um, but there's always there's always something sort of floating around to um, you know a, a story that you could tell tomorrow it might not have been a story a year ago and it might not be a story in a year's time so it's also getting it at the right time where um, it there's a news angle, there's a newsiness to it. Um, yeah, it's a hard thing. That that was something I struggled with when I started as a journalist. After 18 months uh, in radio news, I rang Dad in tears and said, I'm the worst cadet journalist the ABC's ever had and I've let you down. And it's like a, a great racehorse who's thrown a dud. Like, <laughs> I'm just hopeless. Oh. And I was crying. I said, I'm going to Geelong. I'm quitting. I'm going to go off and be a wool classer. And then I can just tootle around Southern Australia with a horse and a dog. <laughs> and I won't be embarrassing you anymore. And, and he sent me this book and I read it. And it was all about what, what is a story and how a newsroom works. And I think that's part of the job that I love is the story hunting and finding stories that people haven't necessarily heard before. Not not relying on somebody in PR to send me a press release about their new wine or whatever. I like finding my own stuff and being as original as you can. And if it's an issue that people have already heard about or someone that they know about showing it in a different way or uncovering something that they might not have known before or seen before. Me too. I so agree with that. Yeah, there's something so tantalising about the untold story. And And when you find one, like the light bulb goes off and it's so exciting and they're just such precious moments where you go, oh, I've got one. And then when you ring them and there's that moment where are they going to say yes? And when they say yes, it's like another little yay dancing at my desk. Um, I don't know what my cats think because there's a lot of (laughs) getting off the phone and going, yeah, yeah, (laughs) doing a happy dance. Uh, what is your barometer for when you're onto a good one, a good story? Uh, oh, it's just uh, it's what I didn't know when I first started. I'd go to a press conference, I'd come back, and a politician might have spoken for 30 minutes. I couldn't work out why if you picked up the paper the next day or watched the news that night, all the journos knew what the lead was. I didn't. I mean, there's 30 minutes of words and I've got to do a 45-second radio news story. I, I didn't understand how everybody knew what the lead was. And I th- and after 18 months, I was still clueless. It just took so long. And, and uh, the, the moment that you work that out as a journalist, like most people get it in the first week, but, yep, I was a bit slow out of the blocks, um, it that thrill never goes away where you go, I know what my lead is, I know who I'm going to ask, I know where I'm going to go after that, and then I'm going to have this fact and then that one's going to join to that one and it's going to sing, it's going to be fabulous. So, yeah, I've 
the the last story that I did, there was just a moment where I just I realised, well, these people have been doing this for four years, so why is it the right time to tell the story? And I worked out why the right time was to tell the story and it was to do with Beef Week and it was to do with the fact they were in drought and now it's rained and now we can, and their system responded to the rain, the system that people are wondering whether it will even work in, in their area and it's worked. And so there's that perfect time to tell the story and and that's like oh, I think it's like when your horse that you've got in the sweep at work wins the Melbourne Cup you're like yay it's, just, <laughs> it's all, all falling into place we'll be back with Pip in just a moment but now a word from today's sponsor today's episode of life on the land is brought to you by Marcus Oldham College the Institute of Choice for many of our podcast guests. Founded in 1962, Marcus Oldham is Australia's only independent agricultural and equine business management college. With a world-class reputation, graduates pursue successful careers that shape the future of farming, both across the country and the globe. At Marcus Oldham, they're passionate about creating female leaders in farming and beyond. Whether you want a career change or to sharpen your business skills in the field, choose from a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses designed and taught by the industry experts. Explore a one-year diploma of equine management, a two-year Bachelor of Business Agribusiness or a three-year Bachelor of Business Agriculture. Each course is carefully developed in consultation with the industry and offers a truly unique educational experience. To find out more, go to marcusoldham.vic.edu.au. I know also that uh, your late husband, John, was a really good barometer for what was a good story. And it's so hard to believe that it's almost been um, 10 years since since he died. Can we talk a bit about him? How, how, is life, how has life been in those last 10 years? Um, I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned that uh, how I'm the luckiest girl in the world in many ways I have such wonderful friends and colleagues who got me through unimaginable bewildering grief and shock took a long time before I realized it was actually true and uh, I don't know I, I, I don't know how my friends just had the the the, the understanding and to get me through it um, and, you know, my family and my colleagues, um, just just rocks, just rock-solid people who aren't there just for the first week or the first three months and then disappear. They've just been amazing. And I suppose I've learned that you can, that I think we're wired to keep going. I think you're wired to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm, I miss him. We were partners in life and work, and that's and with no kids, it's a pretty yeah. It's he's left such a huge gap in my life, and but deadlines are very compelling. So I just set stupid deadlines and went after them, 
and I'd say to the boss, yeah, I'll have that story ready for whatever day and, and I would just try and focus on, on my work because if I focused on other, if I focused on the loss, it was just too overwhelming. I miss giving him his call sheet because when you're the journal, you write the call sheet. You say where we're going, what we're doing and why, and I'd say, here's your call sheet. I'm now actually being paid to boss you around and be in charge <laughs> of you. And he'd smile and go, that's fine. <laughs> Knowing we were going, you know, packing and getting ready to go away on a trip together, I always loved that. And and just used to sometimes I'd be in the car and I'd look at, look at him driving and, and I'd just think, how lucky am I? I'm in the best job in the world, the best cameraman, and he's my best friend and we're sharing this together. And And he, as a cameraman, was always very interested in the topics. I mean, not all cameramen are, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but he'd be as interested in the information and what makes this person tick as I was. So he was almost like a producer as well as a cameraman, which is pretty unusual and it's a great gift because they'll, they'll be reminding you, hey, have you thought about this? And what about if we set up this sequence to do this? Because then that means you've got pictures to talk about that idea that we were talking about last night. And so, yeah, he was a real collaborator as well and just so talented. I, I'd look at his pictures and go, I just can't believe that my story is going to have these pictures. They're just stunning in the way he thinks and the care he took. Um, yeah, it was, I probably didn't appreciate it at the time how special it was because it just seemed normal to us. So, yeah, you speak about him so beautifully. I'm almost, like I'm just getting lost in what you're saying. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Um, tell me about, yes, you know, you used to, you mentioned, you touched on this a little bit, but you used to finish your interview and then you'd look over your shoulder and say, and <laughs> have I forgotten anything? Or <laughs> Yeah, he was a great one at the end of the interview. Um, like, when you're doing the interview, sometimes I think cameramen they'll be they'll be really thinking about the lighting and um, but John was really always listening to the words. And at the end of the interview, I'd turn around and I'd say, "And have you got anything that you want to ask?" And quite often he'd come up with an absolute zinger of a question, and I'd be thinking, "That is a really good question," <laughs> and I missed that. <laughs> so I was always, and other reporters would say, "God, John always comes up with these really good suggestions for." I go, oh, yeah, he's a really great cameraman. And they go, no, he comes up with really great questions that I should have thought of. And I said, <laughs> oh, he does that to me too because he's always listening. And so, yeah, he, he could really cut through. And so he's just this other pair of journalism eyes on a shoot as well as the cameraman's eyes. It was, yeah, it was, it was just wonderful. I think when that helicopter crash happened, it was a real moment, especially for me having been an employee of the ABC, but for many Australians. And I remember watching in on the funeral service um, online. I think I watched it and he spoke so beautifully in his eulogy. I don't know how he did that, but he talked a lot about letters that he used to write you. Can you tell me a bit about them? I just love that. Uh, when I was, he travelled a lot. He didn't work just on landline, so... You know, the rare chance, I probably got to work with him six or seven times a year and 
if he was going away on a shoot for Australian Story or going on the election trail for, for news, he would quite often leave me a card on the pillow. And if he was away for a long time, I would get cards in the mail. And he had this beautiful handwriting. Mine's a doctor scrawl. And he's, this, he's so beautiful and quite um, unique. I, beautiful penmanship. And he always picked beautiful cards. They always had horses or cats or Jack Russells or um, just images that we or I, we as a couple, or I as an individual loved. And they just, he never repeated himself. There was a, he could come up with a million ways of explaining why he loved you and how much he was going to miss you. And I just treasured them and kept, kept everyone. And yeah, in my low days, I would pull out these mass, this massive box. I've got two big boxes full of them, and just, um, just read them and remember how lucky I was and how wonderful he was. And yeah, and then sometimes I look at the box and I think, oh, I can't possibly read them. And then I've, I've looked at them once in the last year, but in the first year afterwards, I think they were very well thumbed. Mm. <laughs> yes, he was a. Uh, thoughtful he was probably the most thoughtful person and he he wasn't afraid to tell you that he loved you and he managed to never run out of ways of saying it in a different way um yeah Uh, such a gift such a gift that you that you have yeah my cousin Sarah she said you know what you guys had in your short marriage is more than a lot of people have in a very very long one I said yeah I I get that Sarah (laughs) but it you know it still ended way too short Mm. um yeah I've had a few people I had one lady who read the story that Trent Dalton wrote about us and she said she kept that she was single and she kept it beside her bed and she used to read it and say there must be a John Bean out there for me, that they do exist. I guess he was a unicorn and I was very lucky. What have you learnt through your journey about grief? Many people go through grief and it manifests in so many different ways. I was very lucky. I was given some very hard advice by uh, the police liaison officer who worked for the coroner's office. He said, you don't have kids, you work together, you had a good marriage, you were each other's best buddies and because you will never get to see his body, it's just a recipe for being truly fucked up. And he said you need to get help, you need to get good help and you need to get it soon. Someone needs to make calls for you right now. And so I saw a grief, a grief counsellor, a psychologist who specialises in traumatic grief where people never see their loved ones again. And she was amazing. And I don't know how I would have coped without her saying all the madness that's going on in your brain is actually normal and that people think grief is a series of steps. And there's, the, you know, the book 
that I had read after my dad died about you do this and then you'll feel this and then you go to here and then you get spat out at the other end and it's and somehow you're going to be okay. And she said, it doesn't happen in a particular order and you can be going through two or three feelings at the same time. So I thought I was the craziest person in the world and she is. she just said, everything you are feeling is normal because of X, Y, Z. And that meant that you could keep putting one foot in front of the other. And if I see people struggling with grief, I try not to intrude, but I try to let them know, hey, this really helped me. And she also said as as Australians, as a society, are really crap at grief. Other societies have come up with ways of dealing with it, acknowledging it, looking at, at it, staring it down, really. And so she helped me a lot and so did my friends but it it doesn't go away you just accommodate it mm. and so I think there'd be a lot of people out there who would struggle and I would say getting help even though I walked in and my friend who dropped me off and I said well I'll see you in an hour this is all bullshit how's she going to help me <laughs> what she going to bring him back she's going to make me stop crying and I walked out and she said oh so how's how's how did that go? And I said, oh, she was amazing. Mm. I, she just was able to explain the way the brain works and, and, and what shock is and what that does to your thinking process. And it was just so valuable. So I would say to anybody, even if it's from 20 years ago, go and talk to someone because our brain works in particular ways and she, and she just would explain it and I like explanations. It's what I try and do in my job to, to understand that you're not alone. And I think there's, there's one thing I used to say to myself if I was ever getting too sooky about things, like how many widows were created today? You're just one. It's a club. You're a, a reluctant member of it. You're not the only one. And there's somebody out there with worse losses than you. But, yeah, counselling is really important and having friends who never who just never gave up on you. And now Betty the cat's jumped up to give me a cuddle. Oh, do they? <laughs> so, how many cats have you got? And do they oh, read you so well? Uh, well, the two that John and I had, our uh, Coco and Bella, uh, Bella never left my side. And my friends, because uh, I was at one point, I think it was two days afterwards, I somebody gave me some Valium and just said we just got to knock her out and for four hours I was knocked out and I had two mates who did two hours each just sitting there keeping an eye on me while I was um, finally asleep and they said Bella just sat on the pillow next to my shoulder and looked at me and eyeballed them and yeah she knew something was up and she um, never she slept they slept with me every night, so did Coco. And if I had a cry, they they were there. They really are great therapy. And I think cats get a bad rap. They are very loving. <laughs> They're very intuitive. <laughs> I think I give and cats the, a know, bad rap. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, she's just picked up on the fact that I'm having a bit of a moment talking to you. And up here she is purring and wanting to sit on me. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Betty. Hello, Baba. Is there some solace for you in the fact that it 
is a uh, shared experience. This, um, the, John's accident was there were other people killed during that time? No, no, not really. No, not at all. Uh, and I think, you know, there are some people who say, oh, at least he died doing what he loved. That's not, there's no solace in that either. Like, gone is gone. It doesn't matter if it was crossing the road to buy milk or doing doing a job. Um, no, not really. I mean, yes, there were three people who became widows in at the same time, but we live in different states and um, we, we stay stay in touch. Um, but no, no, it's mm. it's a really isolating personal thing. You love horses. Was that uh, a, a way that you could kind of escape during this time? And do you still use them now? Uh, I had sold my horse, uh, my sole horse. Like if John was a unicorn husband, I had Richie the unicorn horse who was my sole horse. And um, I had a bad accident and fractured my shoulder and lost my nerve. So... Uh, and doing landline was too, it was too hard to have a horse. I did it in Canberra and did it in Melbourne, but it was super expensive. And when you go away on a 10-day trip, you're paying someone to rug and feed and here's the number for the vet if you get sick. And it was, it was well, I, I probably would have kept doing it. But then when I lost my nerve, which is just the weirdest, horriblest thing to happen because suddenly I couldn't enjoy it anymore. So... I love it when I go to a farm and there's horses and I always go up and say, can I sniff your horse's neck? Because I just love it. All us crazy horsey girls, the horses just smell the best. And, um, yeah, it is It is on my bucket list of things to maybe, um, I've been talking to a few people about, is there someone out there who can help me? Because my aunt, who's, who's a great horse rider, she said, I'll fix you. Right, I'm going to blindfold you, put you on a horse bareback, put you on the lunge, and you can go over Cavalettis. Ugh. Like she's she's hard. She she could have been a marine. I'm like, no, I need someone. I need to do something a bit more gentle than tumbling off a horse blindfolded without reins and you, bareback. You, oh. Did you do it? You didn't do it, did you? No, no. <laughs> no. Auntie Wendy's prescription was a bit too um, <laughs> Navy Seal for me. <laughs> Do you think that you'll be working with Landline forever? <laughs> um, the time to go, the time to move on. I hope that I get to make that decision. <laughs> um, but at, at the moment, uh, my standard is if I can imagine someone at my desk and not want to kill them, then that's the time to go. But at the moment, if there was somebody at my desk doing my job instead of me, I would want to kill them. So I'm still super interested like I was on as much as probably more than I was on day one because I'm a lot more confident now and I know more people um, and I know more things and I've got more skills. And I think I'm like my dad. Um, cancer stopped him from being a journalist um, even after he retired. He mm. was a consulting and doing all sorts of writing and I think that urge to tell stories, to find stories, to be a story hunter and a storyteller, it, I don't think that goes away. So, no, um, I'm not ready to hang up my hat yet. <laughs> oh, no, please don't. Have you, and I'm sure 
although you there are many corners of Australia that you touched through your work um, of rural Australia, um, I'm sure you've got more places that you, what's on your bucket list of places you want to go with work? Ah, well, my mum says, I wish that we'd bought a map of Australia and with every place that you went, I could put a pin. Mm. And I wish I had done that too because um, there's still some gaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, there's some, there are still places I want to go, people whose stories I want to tell. Um, and I'll, I look at my folders and I think I know there's stories in there, but like unless Landline becomes a, a daily program, I can't get to them. And then there's new stories that reveal themselves every week, every month, every year, stories that you know, we weren't telling stories about regenerative agriculture 10 years ago. And when I first started, Zero Till was just coming in. And so there's always something new and exciting to explore. Like ag doesn't stand still. The scientists aren't standing still. Our knowledge of how the systems work and how you can uh, run, run better systems that never stops. And then the public's expectations of agriculture, that's constantly changing as well. And that's not going away anytime soon. So there's, there's still lots of stories to tell and, uh, and there always will be. And I don't think I'm going to be one of those people who don't want to mention the R word, the retirement word. I don't think I'd be one of those people who retired and then left a the world of storytelling. But for me, the perfect way to tell a story is with a TV crew, with sound and pictures and um, music and having an editor who's super talented and a cameraman who's super talented and a sounder who is as well all come together to create 12 minutes of television. And it's so funny when, when we're on a shoot and the, and the talent will say, so how long did all, does all this take? <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's taken an X number of hours or days to organise and then, you know, we flew here and then got a hire car and then came here and we'll be here for four days and then we go back and Pip transcribes and then she scripts and then she goes to the edit suite and there's a couple of days in the edit suite and they're just like, you're kidding, all that, 12, 15 minutes? It's like, yeah, it's not a quick business. <laughs> if you ever do retire from Landline, do you reckon you could be a farmer? Uh I'd be very bad at dairy farming because I love sleeping in. So maybe I could be the, the world's first nighttime dairy farmer. <laughs> I can call my farm night owl dairy products or something. Um, no, I don't have the I don't have the temperament for it. I think you've got to have an element of the gambler. I think farming, in some ways, is like a casino without a roof. <laughs> the the risks they take. Even if everything goes right, China can put some tariffs on you or India can put tariffs and suddenly you've done everything right and even the weather was right and the prices are right. Mm. That The level of risk they take about what the weather's going to be like or what another country is going to do, um, it's, well, I, I don't have the appetite for that sort of risk. But I do it. I think that's why I admire the, the the really good farmers so much is there's so much risk involved it could be a disease outbreak that ruins everything um mm. it could be 
like COVID. So you've got an export market in China, bang, it's gone. Or it's all about um, servicing high-end restaurants, gone. Um, I don't know how they do it. Quite often we leave and the camera crews will be saying the same thing. We look at each other and go, how do they do it? Why do they choose to do this? It's so hard. And I I would want to keep every animal. So um, I'd have to grow olives or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I'd be be there crying while the truck was being loaded with with animals. (laughs) Which happens, doesn't it? I don't know that that's a very good way to think. Maybe, I don't know. I'd have to grow a plant. But then I can't grow mint. So Costa from Gardening Australia keeps saying it is possible that he can teach me how to grow mint. Um, <laughs> so I think my future as a farmer would be um, short and ugly and ugly. financially <laughs> devastating. <laughs> uh, well, Pip, I think there'd be so many people listening to, to this podcast thinking, I don't know how she does it, but um, thank you so much for taking such an interest in rural Australia and loving it so much and bringing a professional lens to storytelling and for chatting with uh, me today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. See, I told you, what a delightful person. Thank you, Pip, for sharing your story with all of us. Thank you to today's sponsor, Marcus Oldham College in Geelong. And you still have time to buy the autumn issue of Grazier if you haven't yet. It's on newsstands everywhere, or of course, it's online at grazier.com.au. In fact, if you subscribe to two years or more, we have a special bonus gift for you. We'll be back with you next week with another Life on the Land story.